second. Great. Can you hear me? You got to unmute yourself. Yep. Lawson. Okay. You should be able to hear me now. Yep. Okay. Yep. I hear you. Ship's here. Let me check on Kingmaker. He said he was going to be able to join too. I don't see him. Let me try re-inviting him because that's when it kept telling me that it would, the connection was not going through. I never seen that before, you guys. It just a message kept popping up saying the connection was lost and then like immediately reestablished. So it was a little dicey there. Okay, that says the invitation was sent to King, so he, he should join in. All right, so tonight we're going to talk about Sidney Powell's plea that she entered in Fulton County Court this morning. Today is October the 19th. And so people know that is a state court. Obviously, it's not the federal court. And um, what, she, what she pled to is not what she was indicted for. Um, so there was a lot of procedural moving parts here. So we've got two former prosecutors, Ship and Lawson. King and I have both always been defense lawyers. So we should have some good perspective on the various procedural moves that were made today. And uh, so let me start by just giving a hopefully short kind of recap of, okay, but what happened today? So as we all, I think, know, she was indicted back in the summer, along with a bunch of other people, for all felony counts about election interference. And then today, what happened is they entered a guilty plea, but she pled guilty under a Georgia statute called a first offender statute. And under their statute, you plead guilty, but the judge kind of holds on to the guilty determination and puts you on probation. And as long as you satisfy all of the conditions of the probation um, within the whatever, how long the period of time is, then at the end of that period of time, which sometimes can be shortened also, but at the end of that period of time, then the judge basically gives back the guilty determination and you do not end up with a conviction on your record at the end. Now, that does mean you do have to um, comply with all of the conditions. So if you violate the terms of your probation or if you get convicted for another crime, um, then you can end up with the conviction on your record. And that, that in that situation, you cannot withdraw your plea either. And the judge told Sydney that today. So you, it's a way of pleading guilty legally in the sense that you admit that there were facts that constituted a crime. You have to do that. The judge conducts the same kind of plea hearing that, that we saw in Hunter Biden's case where the judge has to determine is there a crime and is the person pleading guilty knowingly and voluntarily and so forth. The judge goes through all of those same procedures, but then technically, legally, even though you've pled guilty, it's not considered a conviction on your record unless you end up violating and then the conviction becomes sort of final on your record at that point. But if you don't violate your terms, then at the end of the day, there's no conviction on your record. 
So this kind of a procedure is available in a lot of state courts um, by statute, usually, and it is by statute in Georgia. This statute is Title 42, Section 8-6060. It's called Probation Prior to Adjudication of Guilt. And so you can tell from the name, it's Probation Prior to Adjudication of Guilt. Um, so you do plead guilty, but then the law doesn't consider it to be an actual adjudication of guilt until later on. This procedure is available in all the jurisdictions where I practice. It's called something different in every state. So in Maryland, we call it something similar to what George is calling it. In Maryland, this is called a PBJ, probation before judgment. And depending, it, each state varies a little bit about whether how what the terms are of whether you're eligible or not. In Georgia, for example, you couldn't have a prior felony conviction of any kind. The prosecutor put on the record today for the judge that they had done a background check on Sydney's record. They found that she did not have any prior uh, convictions. The reason that they put that on the record is because it's one of the eligibility criteria for this special first offender section that they're using. So this is why people were confused about can she appeal or can she not appeal? And can the case be dismissed after she pleads? So let me try and clear that up. So she will not be appealing. Typically, you don't appeal after you plead guilty, right? Generally, as a condition of a plea, you waive all of your rights to appeal. Now, there's a few things you cannot waive, like you cannot waive under the Constitution that your lawyer was not effective, you cannot waive under the Constitution that the prosecutor um, engaged in certain kinds of misconduct. You cannot waive under the Constitution that the judge gave you an illegal sentence. So, so there's a few things that you never waive. But for the most part, when you plead guilty, you waive your right to appeal. But again, by statute, or sometimes by common law, the which is judge-made law, there are other exceptions. And so, and in, for example, in the federal court, there's a procedural rule that lets you appeal conditionally. So let's say you have a legal issue that you want to raise, but you're, the government's got you dead to right on the facts. Then you might say, look, I'll plead guilty, but I still want to appeal this one legal issue. And you can negotiate that with the government and do what's called a conditional plea. So you plead guilty, the judge finds you guilty, the judge gives you a sentence, and then you go up to the appellate court and say, you know, what's the answer on this legal question? Because if the defense is right on the legal question, then the whole case gets unwound. But if the government's right on the legal question, then you've already pled guilty and you've already been sentenced. And so it's an efficiency measure that allows the federal court to develop legal issues without having to go through a trial. That's the only kind of way there is in federal court to shorten a criminal case that's similar to what's called summary judgment in civil cases. But you do have to get the government's agreement to use that procedure. And most of the time they will not agree. I had one case in my career where we did a conditional plea. So there are exceptions, usually by statute or by rule, to the general rule that when you plead guilty, you waive your right to appeal. <clears throat> so Sydney, it doesn't sound like she reserved any rights to appeal, except for the stuff I already talked about that you can't waive anyway. It sounds like this is a straight-up plea, but it's under this first offender statute. So she she is eligible to get the dismissal later on, but not after an appeal. It will be after she successfully completes her term of probation. So I looked at the docket today. I listened to a recording of part of the majority of the hearing. Um, 
And it does not look to me like there will be any appeal. There doesn't look to me like there's any reservation of right to appeal. But there is going to be a potential dismissal. The other thing that maybe folks need to know is that the state courts and the federal courts, they work their dockets very differently. So there is no plea agreement on the docket in her case like there is in federal court in Hunter's case. And that is very common. So people know in state court, it is not common at all, at least not here on the East Coast, for plea agreements to be filed on the docket with the court. The judge probably saw a copy of it. The prosecutor has it. Sydney has a copy. Her lawyer has a copy. Um, but that's not going to go on the docket. So unless it gets publicly released some other way, I don't think we're actually going to ever see what the terms of her plea were. But you can partly see what they were because the government did file a motion for what's called nolly prosequi, because lawyers love to use old Latin terms. We're still using Latin <laughs> in 2023. And nolly is the Latin phrase that lawyers use for basically the government is not going to pursue the criminal case any farther. So Sydney pled guilty to these six misdemeanors, but she was indicted, remember, for felonies. And so the government, the procedure the government uses to get rid of the felonies is they file a motion for nolly prosequi with the judge. They had not done that at the hearing, and the judge reminded them at the end that they needed to do that. So later on in the day, the prosecutor filed a formal motion. It's just one page where the motion says we want the judge to dismiss all of the felonies um, in the indictment as to Sydney only because she pled guilty to these other charges. And then the motion says what charges she pled guilty to and what she pled to. We're going to talk about this tonight could be important for her, especially as a lawyer, because if you're a lawyer and you plead guilty to crimes or you get found guilty of crimes, what those crimes are can make a difference as to what the effect might be on your law license. So there was some discussion just a little bit on the record also with the judge about about that issue. So we're going to talk about that too. So having dumped all those facts on you um, and hopefully answered a few of the questions that, that I know people already had, um, let's kind of get started. So I wanted to maybe start with some bigger picture issues. And Bill, I noticed your tweets today. You had some interesting perspective on sort of what does this mean for the case going forward, especially since Ken Chesbro is um, slated to start his trial tomorrow? So he and Sydney were were demanded a speedy trial, and they were going to go first this week. And the rest of the defendants in the state court are are on a different track. So, uh, Ship, you want to talk about sort of how you see what this means for the case overall? Well, okay, so Sydney and She's bro, just bro, had um, exercised their right to a speedy trial under Georgia state law. I think they it was uh, how the way it was calculated in this case. There was less than two months after the indictment for the trial to begin, and I think it, it is it this week. I thought it was next week. I thought it was the twenty third, but I could be wrong. The um, media reported this variously. I, I thought her trial, Sydney's trial, was supposed to start Monday, is what I had thought. But then some of the media was reporting today that his trial is slated to start tomorrow, which is the 20th. So I'm not sure which date is correct. It could be some pretrial proceedings with the jury selection slated to begin next week. Um, so uh, if Chesbro or Cheeseboro, whatever it is, I can't, I, I've never heard definitively. If 
he suddenly has some miraculous misdemeanor outcome that, in effect, avoids the necessity of having Fannie Willis's case put to the test, you know, on a two-month time frame, which they probably were not anticipating and prepared for, then to me, that's a very strong signal that they're either not ready or they're not ever going to be ready and they really don't want to be tested in a, in a, in a courtroom environment. Um, that it was all, you know, a show trial, a show indictment from the get-go. Um, and I think the, the real concern here is that, and, and, and I kind of think that maybe Powell's plea signals this, is that the facts are not generally disputed. It's a matter of whether the facts, as everybody sees them, really amount to a crime. And, and so, you know, a plea agreement, well, I guess we don't have a plea agreement here. We actually have a guilty plea to a whole series of otherwise uncharged crimes, um, or only admission to facts. So the, 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 the point of view of, I, I do not believe there's, I could be wrong, it does not strike me, though, that there's any scenario where Sidney Powell was anxious to be of assistance to Fulton County. Right. Um, and that's and, one of and, the conditions it was is one of the conditions of her plea here that she testify for the government in the um, in the other people's cases. And uh, I was also shocked. I know you were too, Ship, based on your tweet that the judge said the condition was she could not speak to any of the other defendants in the case. And. I was kept waiting for him to say, you know, except through your lawyers, right. Or with the assistance of your counsel, he didn't even say that, but so people know a prosecutor cannot tell one of their witnesses. We don't want you to talk to the defense. That's a violation of the other defendants constitutional rights to the effective assistance of their counsel. So I'll be interested to see if any of the other defendants show up to complain about that. Um, Lawson and King, what do you guys think? I, I was struck by Ship's point that if if they do a plea with Chesabro, um, then the government maybe wasn't ready, right, to to put on their proof with witnesses of this sprawling conspiracy that they indicted so quick. But then the other thing is, let's bounce around the four of us. This it's a big difference, isn't it, between what they indicted her for? And what she's pled guilty to here on a first offender status. Yeah. Lawson, you want to comment? Yeah, I was thinking um, the when you plead guilty to the misdemeanor, I'll go back to where you started, at least in Texas. And, and I've had this happen. There was a supposedly bribed a judge in a county north of Dallas County. And um, she went to trial, uh, jury convicted her. Uh, two other people of this four-person conspiracy pled guilty. Well, my guy said, I, you know, and he's deceased now. Uh, he said, I, I, I can't plead guilty to something I didn't do. I said, okay, well, let's go to trial. We, we did lose at trial, but, we, but I said, judge, what they've alleged is not against the law. Okay, it's it's they're misreading the elections code. Um, 
And uh, of course, the Court of Appeals said, yes, you're right. He, what, what they've alleged is not a crime. So he, he got his conviction reversed and acquitted on appeal. And here's why I bring that up, um, Leslie, is that even though the other two people, and I think the, the judge went to trial first, she got convicted, so she entered a plea, so she didn't have to go to jail, and, but she promised to not run for office and turn in her law license and all that. All of the other defendants got to file what's called a writ of actual innocence. And so it, I have no idea what happened here, but with this many defendants, yeah, I could see if the strategy was um, who's the one with the with the the best facts since they're all thrown in the same conspiracy. Um, you, you know, you just you try to get that person acquitted. And then, you know, at least in Texas, you'd say, well, how can I be guilty? I pled guilty to some that the jury determined wasn't against the law or he was acquitted. Or, or the appellate court later on came along and said it isn't. It, so. <laughs> right. I'm sorry. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, I, I have no idea. That, and that's not ever something you really plan on. I'm just telling you that there's strange things happen when you have a lot mm. of defendants and you go to trial quick. And I'd agree with you I, when I've had you know, been with, had a defendant and there's all these, you know, the press release and DOJ does all that. Then, you know, then you go to trial and um, on the eve of trial, when you're, you've kind of tested their case a little and found out there must've been some holes in that prosecution memorandum, all of a sudden misdemeanors and no jail time that, that, that they're, they're begging you to plead guilty. So uh, that's certainly a reasonable interpretation of, of what happened here. Having a having six misdemeanors is, um, you know, one felony beats six misdemeanors in terms of personal consequences any day. So uh, also the way prosecutors think of it, right, as a former prosecutor, like misdemeanors is, is nothing if you can get felonies on people. So, um, you know, you, they gave up the prosecutor's office gave up six or seven felonies in exchange for six misdemeanors and a misdemeanor that's basically written in invisible ink and in, in 12 months it's gonna right it's gonna de- right here deferred adjudication right. it goes away right deferred adjudications now he did run all of the probations consecutively so it would be interesting to see i don't know i didn't research this can she you know like as she completes each probation for each charge um you know, will the adjudication get taken off one at a time then? Because I think he ran them consecutively and maybe this was in the plea. We'll not, we won't know this because we can't see the papers. Um, Maybe it was part of the agreement for them to run consecutively. But by doing that, each count, the probation is what it is. It's not six years for each one. It's one year for each one all stacked up on top of each other. Yeah. So, she she'll finish each probation as she goes. They'll have to each be assigned to one of those counts. And then, you know, then that will drop off and it won't. She'll only have five on her record then. Right. She'll she'll be losing counts as we go through time. Um, what, what, so, what was the term? What was the term of probation? One year or something? One else? year for each one. But he ran them all consecutive. So it's six, six okay, years. So here's an so so here's an interesting question. Okay, So she has a cooperation obligation. Right. Is is the government able to to basically withdraw her deal if they're not happy with her cooperation? Well, the language is it a condition? You should ask that. I that's why I wanted to look at the statute. So it says the court may enter the adjudication of guilt and proceed to sentence the person when the defendant violates the terms of his or her first offender probation. So yes, so they are hanging it over her head. 
I mean, the terms of the plea did not say she has to say what the government wants to hear, right, at the trials, but it says she has to testify truthfully. And of course, you know, what the prosecutors may think is truthful testimony versus what defense lawyers may think is truthful testimony versus what Sydney may think is truthful testimony. Those could all be three different things, right? But yes, I, I think it's a risk for her that if she doesn't testify the way the government wants to hear it, they might try to tell this judge, well, she is in violation of her probation terms. Yeah. Um, Uh, All right. But then what is the consequence? Let's say she does suffer a misdemeanor conviction because she's not exposed to a felony. What's what what would be the consequence of of having the misdemeanor adjudication actually um, imposed? Right. It might not be that much more than what she's already going to get. I agree. That's where you're going with that, because she's already going to be facing difficult issues with the bar just based on this plea, because even though it isn't a final adjudication of a conviction, most bars and Lawson, I'll defer to you on this as a Texas lawyer, but most bars, the way they have it set up is it doesn't really matter if it's technically a conviction under the law. If you pled guilty to a crime under this kind of a procedure, you're supposed to tell the bar and the bar gets to decide whether they think that calls your license into question. It doesn't have to legally technically be a conviction under the requisite criminal law. So so if that's the case, then there's really no difference whether it's now or later in terms of whether having a misdemeanor on your record or not. Right. So, yeah. So maybe she doesn't care. Ship, that's where you were going with that. She's going to testify to what she's going to testify to. And if prosecutors don't like it, well, yeah, because so you, you always I mean, you sort of have to take into consideration the notoriety of everything that she has gone through going back to, you know, representing Flynn. Right. Is is there really much of a legal practice out there for her in the future? Yeah, that's a hard that she could. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's obviously hard for anybody to speak on behalf of another lawyer and give that up. But it's like maybe the speaking circuit and writing books is in her future. (laughs) More so what her future looks like. Yeah. Rather than, you know, being a member of practicing in a courtroom somewhere. Yeah. yeah, but Chip, you know, Leslie and I have, without getting into names, we've got somebody that, you know, um, had, <laughs> know really well, had a felony and then got admitted back into the bar. So I, you know, there's, mm-hmm. there that, that happened. Um, yeah. Now, interestingly, I went back to see, I couldn't remember if Sydney was admitted in the district or not. So I went back and looked at some of her pleadings. It seems like not. It seems like she was representing um, General Flynn uh, Pro Hoc Vice because in the DC bar, you have an affirmative obligation to bring this kind of a thing to the attention of the bar, and you have 10 days to do so. Um, if you do what she did today, even this little lo- low level of pleading to misdemeanors, um, where the, ultimately you might not end up with a conviction. So I don't know if Texas has the same kinds of rules, but it seems like one way or another, Lawson, she's probably going to have to talk to the bar about this today, right? Yeah, yeah. It's... Um... No, I, the, the rule is, um, you know, the, I think it's 803 and I, I sent you to lose, but it's part eight of our Texas disciplinary rules where, I mean, the, the, the orientation is you're supposed to, uh, you're not supposed to fail to report an apparent disciplinary violation merely because you cannot determine, uh, its scope or existence with absolute certainty. Well, 
that's you know once you have a a guilty plea that's that's pretty easy so i i don't think there's um uh, I, and and this is something that you know when when we've gone through this with professionals doctors or lawyers they're they're very attuned to what are what's going to happen to my license and um so i i'm sure these all these texas rules have been thoroughly vetted and thought through and, and, you know, and used for plea negotiations is, is to get as much mileage as they can and much protection out as they can. Right. So what she pled to um, was conspiracy. Let me bring the actual language up. Conspiracy to commit theft by taking one count of that, and then five counts of conspiracy to commit intentional interference with performance of election duties, which under the Georgia Code, those are all misdemeanors. Um, and so she's avoided the felony trap here, but my antenna went off with this first count, conspiracy to commit theft, because a lot of times any kind of count that has theft or deceit in it is the kind of count that the bar gets exercised about. So I'll um, tell you, Leslie, your, I mean, your instincts are, you know, right. 8.03 or 03 reporting professional misconduct It paragraph E, Lily, a lawyer who has been convicted or placed on probation with or without an adjudication of guilt. So you can't say, well, it's pending. If I'm good, it'll go away by, you know, by any court for bear tree, any felony or a misdemeanor involving theft, embezzlement or fraud or reckless misappropriation of property or money, but, you know, involving theft, including a conviction or sentence of probation for attempt, conspiracy or solicitation must notify the chief disciplinary counsel within 30 days of the order of judgment. And a notice must include a copy of the order of judgment. So um, I don't have any particular insight, but I don't, you know, I'm not really sure where there's a lot of play in the joints on, a misdemeanor when when they said a conspiracy to you know for theft that it wouldn't surprise me if the government said we're going to tap right into the 803e language so there's no right and there's nothing that prevents the prosecutors from doing that right they can look at the bar rules themselves and see you know what what the effect's going to be for the lawyer. Most of the time they don't care about that, but sometimes they will. Right. Right. Uh, you know, Leslie, you and I keep names out of it because we can still be, it's, it happened in open court, but you know, the judge asked, well, what will this do to your, your medical license? Well, I, it's a misdemeanor. So probably nothing. And the judge says, okay, well, the statute says what it says. So, um, there we had a federal judge who was not aware of just this kind of pontificating. Well, I wonder what'll happen to this. Uh-huh. Right. You know, um, so they don't always do that, but that's the judge, not the prosecutor. But that was one where the defense lawyer said, well, I don't, this does, it's not substantially related to the practice of medicine. So, um, you know, is, are those thought about a lot? I'm, I'm, I'm sure they are in, in the parties know what they're negotiating for and where the real red lines are in, in that kind of a deal. It seemed like they thought so in this case too, they were at least aware of the issue because her lawyer, Sydney's lawyer did bring up the question of moral turpitude and the judge made a kind of cryptic remark. And you can tell with this kind of a little hearing in state court that the prosecutor and the defense lawyer and the judge's chambers, if not the judge, him or herself, have kind of talked to about to one another about the case before the case gets called on the docket. So the judge made a cryptic remark about 
they were going to include language in the judgment saying about whether this was a crime of moral turpitude. And what he said was they were going to use the same language that they used in the previous defendant who pled guilty, Mr. Hall, his case. But then the judge sort of off the cuff says, basically, I don't know if that's going to make any difference to the people who are going to be deciding that, Yeah. which I think he meant the bar by that. Right. So this raises another question in, in Maryland where I was a baby lawyer and, and, you know, learned law for the first time, there was a long list of crimes that were falling under the moral turpitude category for purposes of the evidence rules. And then that kind of carries over to the bar has been my experience too. Yeah. So people know this idea of moral turpitude is kind of flexible, right? So, well, well, I think what might be, I think what might be caught up here is, and they, they may have covered or they may have not, is the nature of what was taken. Because I think right. that what was taken was just information, data. Right. Not like not like taking hundred dollar bills out of a cash book. Right. A lot of places, anything that's theft is considered to be sort of presumptively a moral turpitude crime that you can overcome that presumption. Right. Yeah. So, but that is kind of the lay of the law everywhere. I thought was theft is you're in moral turpitude land. Maybe you can overcome it. But so I, it looks to me like they. The parties thought about that ahead of time, and, and they try, they're trying to put some language in the, in the order. So this brings me back around, and King, I want, your, I want your view on this. It brings me back around to, it seems to me, a big drop as a defense lawyer from six or seven felonies, where you're looking at 25 years max, down to these misdemeanors. And then on top of that, you're doing this probation case with no convictions it's a big difference between what she was charged with and this plea they worked out do you agree absolutely for a defense lawyer that is a absolute 100 percent win on the criminal case on the criminal case later right yeah yes uh so it that you would clearly tell your client to take it uh and and guaranteed no jail too. So yeah, and and you and in the process, that lawyer who was very good. Uh, I've seen him in seen a couple of videos of the hearings he argued. Uh, he, he he presents himself very well, and his arguments are logical, precise. Uh, covers what needs to be covered without going too far afield. Uh, His, the thing that strikes me most curious here is the fact that his pitch to the court, every time he stood up in a Brady motion, in a general demur or special demur, every time he talked to the court about what he wanted from the court, on behalf of his client he was making two points one my client is not guilty of this rico conspiracy or any other kind of conspiracy uh they've got their facts wrong she it's alleged in the indictment that she conspired with these other defendants beginning in december 2020 20 mm-hmm and continuing through January 7th, 
2021. And the conspiracy involved breaking into and, quote, stealing or uh, without authority, taking the software uh, and the data from the voting machines in Coffee County, Georgia. And, um, and the pitch was Sydney wasn't there. She, she, she hired the consultants who were involved in that exercise for a totally different case in Michigan, the Antrim County case, where they had a court order permitting those very consultants to look at the machines and, and write a report. That's what she was paying those consultants for. That's what the contract was for. And she wasn't involved in any discussions about doing the same thing, but without a court order in Georgia. And let me stop you there so people know, because this was covered in the hearing today. They danced right down that line you just laid out there. They absolutely did. Did you listen to the hearing? I did. Yeah. Didn't they? Yeah. Go ahead. Tell us what you think. Because I was like, wow, that's a fine line. (laughs) Yeah. It's they danced around it because she she was adamant. She said the argument was the government is sitting on exculpatory evidence. They've got testimony, judge, of people who know who would have testified if they told the truth that Sidney was not involved in this. In this, but they in had the to put, yeah. So, let me sorry, and and, and, and and we just got some of it, and there's emails that shows she's not on that she wasn't sent any any correspondence about the lead up and what they were going to do in Coffee County, and and the Georgia Bureau investigation came out with a report a couple of weeks ago that pretty much did the same thing. It doesn't tie Sydney to this plan to go to coffee County and look at the machines. So the uh, way they danced around that you guys today and for, for the factual proffer for the judge was they basically said she was doing what she was doing. She hired that company. Okay. That was true. And that the company did this stuff with this clerk of the election clerk or wherever in coffee County, they didn't link the two. They, and, and, and they did not ask or did not put in the record any of the facts that tie Sydney to anything that happened. They right. just, the only fact was that she had hired that company, that she had that, a contract with them, which was that's true. It. And so yeah, she that, could admit that fact. <laughs> yeah, she, yeah. She admitted that in her pleadings. Right. But it was for the Michigan case, right. her lawyer represented to the court. And right. there's, uh, there is out there, I want to, I'm not sure uh, in what context it was, published on the internet, but there is a recording of a telephone call between the consultant that uh, she was she had been dealing with in Michigan and the one who went to Coffee County to look at the machines on January 7th. Well, he and Sydney talked on the 8th, the next day. And I listened to the recording and it supports what her lawyer was telling the court. She was shocked. So she expressed surprise that they'd gone and done that in Coffee County. And she says, well, tell me, how did you manage to do that? 
Like Which would seem to be proof positive that she didn't direct them to do it. She absolutely proof positive. <laughs> and not only didn't direct them, didn't know about it ahead of time. Now, maybe in her mind, she could be guilty of joining that conspiracy if he then shared all the secret information they found with her. Uh, that, that, to me, it, as a lawyer, being asked to plead guilty, even to a misdemeanor, you, you have to justify making that plea by saying, yeah, I guess I could be accused, rightfully accused of doing something wrong. The only, given that phone call, the only thing I can think of that she would justify a plea would be the theory that she joined a, a, an ongoing conspiracy and, and then sat there and listened to pe- what people or looked at, looked at the copies of what they obtained. And therefore, there was an ongoing conspiracy and she joined it after, pretty much after the fact. Okay, which, so we've Which got is not the, what they told the court. Which is not it. what they told the court. Really not what they put in the indictment either. Right. So, yeah. So we've got this big drop off between what they charged her with and what she pled guilty to. And so, so I want please, uh, everybody hey, to talk about, let, in your experience, the three of you, let me ask the question first okay, of all. For sure. In your experience, the three of you, when does that happen where the indictment charges way more serious stuff and then the defendant ends up taking a much lesser plea, maybe even one that's going to end up with no convictions? When does that happen? It, it happened to me this morning. I had I, I had a defendant in a in a RICO Lawyers. case, had a defendant in a RICO case set to go six months, included a murder. He pled guilty this morning to two small hand to hand meth transactions and a completely unrelated conspiracy, and they dismissed the RICO case against him. He went from looking at thirty five years to looking at time served. Yeah, but why? Shit is my question. So people understand. Under what circumstances does that happen that the government has to back down that far? Because it was going to be a fiasco with me sitting down at the end of the table shooting holes in the case with no downside for five months. Because my client had no real evidence of my client in their RICO conspiracy. Right. So, so it was it was my case was. We don't need this defendant at trial. We certainly don't need this lawyer defending him at trial. So addition by subtraction by getting rid of him, here's a deal. Time served. All right. Say you're guilty and, and it's over with. Now you're out of the case. Yeah. All right, Lawson, yes. your experience. When does that happen that the government backs down so far? Well, either as a prosecutor or defense. Lawyer. Sure. So what Ship just said is exactly right. When you if you had a five or six defendant, you know, that you had authorization to indict him, you there was times when you said, well, this person's I, I can make an, a law school case why an, an indictment would be proper and probably a judge would let it go forward because there's deference to the executive branch. But do I really want to have a fifth or sixth lawyer, particularly if it was a good lawyer where his client doesn't have much to lose? Who gets to take another shot at my client? I mean, at the at the at the government, at the government case. case. Yeah. All right. But what if there's only your client? Just one one client. Um. Uh, yeah, that's I, I, I mean, that's on the defense side. I've had that where there were three felonies and we showed them your test is wrong. You don't know how to calibrate the machine. We were um, they said we're not going to plead guilty. And they were giving away misdemeanors. Uh, and my guy just said, I'm, 
this is a different person. He said, I'm not, I'm not going to plead guilty to something I didn't do. I said, okay, well, I'm your man. So we were in trial for two months with the EPA and um, 77 not guilties made the front page of the Wall Street. So, but that's one where my client said, I, I didn't do anything wrong. I'm not going to swear I did that. And the people who pled guilty, I mean, that was a pretty dispirited, but they were getting misdemeanors and they were like our witnesses. They wanted to help our people get <laughs> right. I mean, so uh, so when the government overcharges, that's probably the easiest answer. Um, you know, it, it, it worked on the getting the process memo through and getting approval. But then when you got to go try it, you go, uh oh, how am I going to do this? And and you haven't looked at the evidence from that. And I will say on the government side, it's a lot harder when you're trying to look at a big economic case and make inferences without direct evidence of guilt. And you're trying, well. You know, I, I think the jury will find that the, there was willfulness from these facts. That's it, it's harder than you think that it is. So um, sometimes those those just slip through and, um, you know, the government goes forward and they, they make a mistake. Uh, Leslie, the other thing I was going to say I, on the this is our, our Texas rules, 803 reporting and then 804 what you, you have to report. But the 803. It's it's interesting, and there might be a lot more to the the verbiage in that plea. But it, again, it says any any um, if you do anything of bear tree or any felony, and then or for a misdemeanor involving okay theft, embezzlement, or fraudulent or reckless misappropriation of money or other property. Now you know is that just is that just modifying reckless misappropriation or, or you know, fraudulent or reckless misappropriation? Or is that going to have to do with any any misdemeanor uh, so in, in including a conviction for a conspiracy? But I think, you know, um, I'll be curious to see what's what's going to be that information. This sure looks like it's money or property. And then, and let's face right. Does that count information? Sometimes yeah. it does. Sometimes it doesn't. And, and let's face it: when you're trying to research technical cases under state law, a lot of times there is just that you know it's it's not white collar defined distinctions where you've got the federal right. order and nine different circuits. So they might have seen some you know the legislative uh, or congressional record that says, hey, we're trying to keep people from you know just getting getting out uh, a property or, or money or something like that. This is an economic crime. So, uh, you know, if that's the case, it's uh, rule of lenity puts a bar. You're defending somebody in front of the bar. That's what to work with. Yep. All right, King, let me come to you, and then I'll finally say what my opinion is. In your experience, King, you've practiced law longer than all of us What as a defense lawyer. When is it that the government offers you a really low plea? King, can you hear me? Yes, I'm sorry. I had to punch my mic. Uh, easy answer is uh, when they, they they are afraid they're going to be embarrassed. Right. At trial. <laughs> That's my answer, too, when they realize it's going to be a shit show at trial. <laughs> and, and that's going to happen here uh, because, because once Sydney's got her defense that the government flat misled the world on the facts of the case against Sydney. Uh, but she also had a pending motion in limine that was just filed uh, on the issue of legal authority. Uh, 
looking for Brady material on was that uh, <laughs> that the clerk, the election clerk in Coffee County, Miss the Missy Hampton, I think's her name. Um, she had authority and did authorize everything they did when they came to Coffee County and look at the the equipment. Now and they copy. told the judge today that wasn't the case, didn't they, at the hearing? Right. They weren't authorized, and they weren't they were, authorized by an authorized person. That's what the government said they were going to prove. That's what they're going to prove, but but they could easily lose that because right. it, it's a it's mostly statutory. Uh, the, it's a legal defense that that who who in the county first does the county have that ability since they're in control of the equipment do what if, if they think something is wrong do they have the uh, the right to hire or, or have uh, independent experts to come examine and review it and see if the machine works as it's supposed to uh that's one second is uh uh if the county does, who in the county must approve it for that authority to be binding on the county? And Sydney's motion, I thought, was very well written and made a, a strong case that Missy Hampton ha was the decider and, and had that authority to bring people in to look. And that may be an issue that the uh, government does not want to try before their big case against everybody else right okay so my answer is the same as yours every time this has happened to me where i've gotten a really 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 sweet deal from the <laughs> prosecutors it's because they have a problem with their case and they don't want to pitch it to a judge or a jury because they're afraid they will lose and there is nothing prosecutors hate more than losing that, I mean, they would rather, you know, give away the game than lose the game. Yeah. So, um, okay. So, but if it's well, such a big let, come let, down. Let me jump in there real quick. And, and yeah. I'm, I'm driving now. So if there's a little background noise, I, I apologize. Um, I, I think, though, that there's a tactical issue here as well. In, and this is why I think if we see Chesbro plead, we'll know that this is what it is. Is It's a free look for every other defendant. Right. Uh, to um, their it, case, to the government's it, case, you mean? Yeah. And it creates yeah. testimony under oath. They're going to have to put on, you know, most of their case. I mean, I, I haven't looked at it closely enough to know how much they could compartmentalize the cases against Powell and Chesbro and, and not use all of the witness testimony that might come into play in the you know case against Giuliani and Trump and whoever else down the road. Um, if they ever get there, but you know, as a prosecutor, I, I, it was my habit, my practice to not put witnesses in before the grand jury because I didn't want to create more question and answer under oath. Right. They could then be cross-examined within trial. Well, if you're going to have, you know, a couple sort of preseason trials before you get to the big game involving Trump. You know, you're running all your plays for the other side to watch film on. Yeah. Right. So so I think, you know, and I, I don't know enough about, I, I mean, I will have to confess to all of the masses listening here that I have not yet read the entire 
Georgia app uh, indictment start to finish. So I don't know the degree to which this whole Coffee County escapade can sort of be excised from the broader narrative of the conspiracy and, and just let it sink beneath the waves if it's got problems and, and <laughs> still mo- move forward on the rest. But if that's possible, then I, I think that's saying, pretty likely. Yeah, I have yeah. read it. It looked like a standalone piece to me. So, I agree. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. so, so now they could be done. They could be done with that. Hey, so, Ship, I was going to ask you, I, and I, I don't remember where the statistics came from, at least anecdotally at DOJ, when somebody, if there was a, a conviction was reversed on appeal, the the chance of an acquittal uh, went up substantially because because then for the reasons you said, they the the defense lawyers knew exactly what was going to happen, or much more so than if a, a, a you know a smart prosecutor, you just don't use a grand jury because you're just creating transcripts you have to disclose, um, or a seasoned prosecutor. So w- what that means is, you're right, the more that some of these things go to trial or there's hearings, the more that evidence comes out that the other defendants are going to be substantially better off because they're, they're going to see, they'll know how to read the green, so to speak. And um, it, it, the, the ability to ambush the defense is going to, with the more the records out there, the less ability the government has to do that. Right. So then this raises the question, which people are asking, which is, okay, so if their case was weak, if there was problems, if there was all this stuff and it's such a sweet deal, then why take the plea? Right. Why not push the pedal to the metal or to the mat or whatever the expression is and and say, well, then you're not going to do well from the jury and, and try to get your acquittal. But there's it's defense lawyers. There's always like a lot of reasons why you don't want to roll those dice. Right. Well, I had a former January 6th client roll the dice with a D.C. jury two weeks ago in a case where I have said over and over again on the record, he's factually innocent. And the jury convicted them on every count. Yeah, right. So, so you know, you, you know, it just comes down to: are, are you so confident that you're going to place your fate in the hands of twelve likely hostile strangers in Atlanta, Georgia? Not, not only that, but you have the the monumental cost of sitting there four and a half months at least, hundred and eighty prosecution witnesses that's what they say uh with you know and 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 your base your your case your part of the case is basically the tail of this giant dog yeah and and you're gonna sit there your lawyers have a hard choice do they have to do they put on a defense to all this other stuff relating to trump and Giuliani and Eastman having nothing, and nothing and to on. do with right. on and on. Yeah. And, and then how do you pay for all that? Uh, when you're given a plate with a no jail misdemeanor only that goes away after a year uh, deal yeah. to get out of this, that's it, kind of an easy choice. Right. Right. Yep. <laughs> One thing that always complicates is is that, and as a lawyer, I found this hard every time, is when you have a lawyer or another licensed professional, but especially lawyers, in a criminal case taking a plea. It's just, there's just always extra considerations because you you might be dooming that person's law license too, and they know it, and it's 
it just makes it an extra level of difficult. Yeah. But you still got to weigh it against, all right, but what happens if we go to trial and get convicted? Yeah. Yeah. Right. Well, it's it's certainly not uncommon in Texas where when when that happens that I don't care how competent of a criminal defense lawyer that, you know, you read the Texas Bar Journal and there are lawyers who specialize in representing lawyers before the, you know, the Texas, you know, the bar's disciplinary committee. And if you if you're not associating with somebody that's doing that, you're probably not. Uh, I don't want to say malpractice, but you 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 really need to be in having. Some... Yeah, you need to know that law if you don't do it yourself. Yeah, you're right. Right, so that that's an issue. the The other thing I was going to take, I'll go to our other rule, eight point oh four. So I talked about you know the reporting requirements. It's probably paragraphs little three or sub three, sub four, and five. Engage so you can't commit a serious crime or commit in any other criminal act that reflects adversely on a lawyer's honesty, trustworthiness, or fitness. Um, all right. That's got some wiggle words in there, but number three, you can't engage in conduct involving dishonesty, fraud, deceit, or misrepresentation or engage in conduct const constituting obstruction of justice. So on one hand, you're sort of bound by the plea, but it's, it's not uncommon that, if, if somebody, and, and by the way, we have sort of mandatory, you could read it this way, that if you know another lawyer has done something wrong, unless they are, have chemical dependency, there's an exception for that. It, the, the rules indicate that you're supposed to report them to the appropriate authorities unless it's confidential information, and you're supposed to report a judge too. So you can imagine with this political um you know, the, the device of oh, people will be filing bar complaints against her tomorrow, probably. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, right. 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 Yeah. So but I'm yeah. just saying that, you know, based on the facts we've heard today and like what King's saying, gosh, there's man, there's just like there's a lot of running room to say this is not one of those. Yeah, I technically pled guilty to this conspiracy of theft, but this is it doesn't ring the bell for you know, uh, sub two, three or four in terms of why I should lose my license on this. So I, um, you know, it's that's why there's upsides and downsides, you guys, to whether or not you have a written statement of facts or whether you have what we had today in her case, which was the prosecutor just put on the record the facts that that they think they can prove that substantiate the claim. So if we compare it to Hunter's case, and I want to do that in a minute here with you guys. Uh, in his case, there's a written statement of facts. We can all see well what's included in the facts and what isn't, right? In her case, there's nothing written. It's just what that prosecutor put on the record. So the bar counsel has to go and get the transcript and see, well, what, what did the government say they were going to prove? And the judge asks, and he asked Sydney today, you know, you heard the prosecutor rattle off those facts. Do you agree that those facts, you know, are true, correct, you know, and constitute the offense. And she said, yes, because you have to say yes in that situation, unlike Hunter's right. lawyers <laughs> who didn't do right. that. Um, and so she'll be stuck with those facts, really, whether she agrees with them or not. But at the same time, the prosecutor's statement was kind of thin. It was kind of bare bones. So a lot of the stuff King is talking about, she'll be able to bring up as right. mitigating in front of the bar. So she kind of got the best of both worlds today in a sense that she's, her lawyers have a lot to work with yeah. in front of the bar. Yeah. So Leslie, that answer is kind of the rhetorical question of why would you do this if you're so innocent? Well, I mean, if the, if the, uh, the, this thing doesn't leave a mark on you other than what it's already done, 
and you you think you've set up where you can defend your your law license, um, look, and there'll be plenty of people that'll think she wears this as a badge of honor. So uh, right, exactly. So what to do? So I yeah. did want to talk to you guys, especially King, because King, you've been with me from the beginning on this. The first one of these we did spaces was about Hunter's plea, and I was going on and on about how his lawyers weren't ready to just tell the judge yes to everything, whatever he wanted to hear or she wanted to hear. In that case, the judge is a woman. Um, so you get the plea put to bed. I mean, down and dusted and done. And Sydney's hearing today. I don't think it was more than fifteen minutes. Right. They went in there. Her lawyer didn't hardly say five words. <laughs> right. And that is how you do it when you're the defense lawyer. You just agree with all of it in this proceeding. And the papers are all correct. And, you know, or there aren't papers and you know what the questions are going to be. There was no hemming and hawing. Sydney answered the questions clearly you know, with yes answers, no answers. There was none of this rigmarole like we saw in Hunter's case. So can you want to comment on that? It was night and day, <laughs> yes. Uh, the, the, except for the fact that uh, you, you left, you're left with this puzzle of different versions of what actually happened. And the parties didn't try to tell the court, look, you know, the, the, the government's version of what happened is actually what happened. Those are the facts. And I agree to them. And I plead guilty based on those facts. Sydney never said that. She, you know, the, the prosecutor got up and said, didn't say this is what we will prove. The prosecutor got up and said specifically, this is what we charged and then outlined the uh, bare bones version of the coffee County part of the, the case without going into Rico and, uh, and Sydney agreed that, yeah, she did violate those statutes and uh, the conspiracy charges against her. She, she, she's guilty. She pled guilty. Uh, but uh, you're left with a puzzle of well, what happened to her defense that she wasn't involved. Uh, yep, good lawyer, and, 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 and that's one. That's another reason her lawyer never said anything, because he he made many affirmative representations to the judge of what the facts were. In prior hearings, you mean? In prior hearings, right. over and over and over again. So he was either lying. Or he was telling the truth based on what Sidney had told him and what his own investigation had, had dug up. And or, or they're dancing around the facts, which every defense lawyer has done. Right? That's, yeah. yeah. He's he, still he sitting did. there thinking, well, she didn't direct them to do that. We're agreeing that she hired these people. We're agreeing that they did this. We're not agreeing that she told them to do it or she knew about it. Right. That's why. You would have to get the transcript and parse through. What did she actually agree happened? <clears throat> I, the purposes of the plea, they had to agree that it violated the statute. Yes. Yeah, yes. The plea can't go through. So that's why I agree with you. That's why that lawyer's sitting there. He's not saying anything. At Lawson, you were going to say that's good lawyering, right? Yeah. Yeah. And um, here's another thing. So think about it. You're doing your, have your Texas bar proceeding. So is, is, 
what's Georgia, what are they going to be able to share? I mean, if they've got their uh, Texas grand jury secrecy, you can't even talk about what you talked about. It's sort of like 6C under the federal rules, which, you know, there's a lot of that's protected. But if somebody wants to say, well, what did you tell the grand jury? You know, defense lawyer, unless it's, it violates the right to financial privacy, there's some very small exceptions on that. But under state court, at least, here, you're not allowed to say what the grand jury was considering or what you were asked. That's just, it's mums the word on that. So if that's the way it, if it's that same similar secrecy in Georgia, then the Georgia uh, prosecutors can't say, look, you know, uh, I know you're trying to prosecute this bar case, but we can't, that, that's, that's not a reason we get to violate grand jury secrecy in Georgia. So that's another issue. Right. So it was like the ship is uh, king is right. It was like a night and day. This is the way you do this plea proceeding when you're the defense lawyer. You don't argue with the judge. You don't argue with the prosecutor. You prep your client to say yes, your honor. No, your honor. <laughs> that is it. That is that's how you get through it right. and move on to the next thing. And that is what Hunter's lawyers just couldn't manage to do, which was very poor lawyering. But he has moved on to Abby Lowell, who is a very good lawyer. So hopefully he won't have those same problems going forward. Yeah, I, I, if I may jump in, I back to the uh, put your prosecutor's hat on. I like to hear. Uh, um, I, I see ship left us. Uh, He's got a, a something he has to do for 10 minutes and then he'll be back. OK, well, I'll. Let me pose the question and, and we can ask him when he gets back. But uh, mm -hmm. you see uh, reports in the media suggesting that this was a win for the prosecution because now they have a guilty plea from a, a prominent figure in the indictment with a cooperation agreement. So Sydney's going to lay the woods to, to her co-defendants in the big trial and maybe do, you know, send Trump to jail. Uh, that that's the message that is coming out of, of this. And I would, what I'd like Chip to comment on, because it's been my experience that if you, if, if a decent prosecutor has a conspiracy case, he does not give it away as to one conspirator pleading down to a misdemeanor with no jail just to get that that guy's testimony against his co-conspirator you no, and usually they want to hang more over your head than that because that's it right they, that they, they they want a they want a guilty plea to at least one uh major count in the case uh, otherwise that that deal, that 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 cooperation, and that, that person's testimony uh, loses a lot of credibility if he, if they basically give it away. Right, because what will happen, you guys, is that you know Trump and Eastman and Giuliani and all of their lawyers will say, "Well, can you really believe what Sydney's saying if it hurts their client?" Because she got this sweetheart deal and she's got to cooperate or else the judge is going to jerk her probation and then revisit her sentencing. So, yep. you know, what would you say? I mean, you can't literally ask jurors that. What would you do in that situation? That's a, that's an inappropriate 
our line of argument. But you imply that when you're the defense lawyer that this witness can't be believed because they're bought, basically. And so, so that's why prosecutors don't want to give sweetheart deals usually. Right. And so when you try to being on the other the defense or the prosecution side of that, when you try to say, well, you have agreement to, you know, Mr. McLean, you got to tell the truth. And then the defense lawyer, you know, truth, truth, according to who? Well, I can't prosecute. Right. <laughs> exactly. This. You can walk. So when I learned, you know, back in the old days, when you would write the rule 35 letter, you just say this person did a great job. It wasn't perfunctory. I would spend time. They gave us this testimony. We couldn't have known that. And so my rule 35 letters never got put into evidence by the defense lawyers because, uh, you know, they would they were all true. But it would say how this person really did this help. And we couldn't have found this out if they hadn't told us this. So how that would happen now, you and I, we have no idea what happened here, but you would think the the prosecution said, well, let me at least, you know, make a proffer. Let me hear this from you. What am I going to get? I mean, to just go in there and, well, you'll cooperate and you don't know what that. Well, they did take a proffer from her and we don't know what that covers. Yeah. So, but, but, but yeah. go back. Are, is she in trouble? She's, she's a very smart lawyer. She's going to stay close enough to that where mm -hmm. she's, you know, and that's maybe that gets turned over. I don't think she's going to have a risk on, oh, I forgot I said that. It's it, okay. I didn't do it. You know, this other person, it's it's not going to be that. It's going to be shades of gray. And those other, her other co former co-defendants are going to know right where she can go and where she can't. And if you think she's going to lean into the government's case, I don't I don't think so. Right. So, and they probably don't um, either. I mean, they did the proffer session with her. So so folks are understanding a couple of things. So Lawson's talking about a rule 35 letter. Rule 35 is the rule in the federal rules that allows a judge. I'm going to boil it down very simply to give a reduce a sentence for a defendant. And it's basically at the government's request, usually for cooperators. And so prosecutors then write these what so-called rule 35 letters that get sent to the judge for part of the sentencing. So that's what he's talking about. Um, and then this issue about the proffer. So a proffer is a, is a meeting with the government where you, the defense lawyer, and your client go in and your client talks to the government about factually what happened. And the government asks questions and, um, and your client answers questions on the record under oath. Um, and usually those are done in a situation where the government pre-plea, before a plea, has agreed that they're not going to use your client's statements against them if there's a later trial directly. They can use it against the client if the client gets up on the witness stand and testifies to something different, but they agree that they won't put the statement into evidence against the client in the government's case. And it's a device where the defense lawyer can let their client explain to the government how the facts look from the defense point of view with a relative right. degree of safety. So I've done this many, many times in my career. And you do this when you're the defense lawyer, when you think the government will, after they hear what your client has to say, think that they're just a witness instead of being a defendant, or think that they're guilty of less than what the government is suspicious that they're guilty of. So you only do this as a defense lawyer when there's some advantage to your client before a plea. Now, as part of a plea like this, Usually the government is the one that's demanding this. They don't want just, as Lawson was saying, your blanket assertion that you're going to tell the truth at trial later. They want to hear what they're buying. They want to hear what they're getting in exchange for their sweetheart deal um, yeah. so that everybody's clear. But I think, King Lawson, comment on this. I always thought as a defense lawyer that 
that advantages me too, because now in terms of what we were talking about earlier, can they claim that she's violated her probation by not being forthcoming? Well, if she testifies in Eastman's trial to the same stuff that she tells them in her proffer that, that they got before they took the plea today, how are they going to prove that she violated her probation? Right, right. You know, Leslie, have I don't know what your experience has been, but I could say on both sides of that, the government can think, well, your client did this because, you know, then they fill in the blanks and you say, no, that's not really right. That wasn't on their mind. Right. That, that wasn't had, the reason. That, yeah. And then the government, oh, okay, well, I guess we are. So you, I mean, my rule is if I'm going to make a mistake, I want it to be in a room with a nine foot ceiling, not a 20 foot ceiling. So <laughs> you know, I could, I could, I mean, typically you could learn some things or not infrequently you could learn things. And you're right. When the defense lawyer, you're able to then sort of do some advocacy and say, my client didn't know that that wasn't on their mind. Here's the only thing they were thinking. So it's their words. And then you get to put you know, your, your characterization on it. And then that really helps mitigate against them saying you double backed on me and that's not what you told me. So uh, I, I think there's a way normally to protect against that. If it's just, you know, kind of subjective characterizations, you can clear that up in that back and forth. And it behooves you to as a defense lawyer. Uh, so you don't let your client walk into something where they think, well, you didn't tell me all about this or you changed your tune. And so I'm not going to go to bat for you. You, you don't want to be there. Right. And that's usually what happens is when the prosecutors think the client changed their story, that's when they start t making noises about telling the judge that you violated your probation. You're right. Right. Uh, King, let me ask you, are you licensed in Georgia? Are you a Georgia lawyer? No, I'm okay. not. I couldn't remember because no, I've, I've, I've tried a case in Georgia, but never. Right. So there. typically there is law. The statute does not say in this case, but typically there's law that if the government's going to say the person breached their probation agreement, usually the case law says that the, they have to have a hearing. The they have to prove that to the judge. They can't right. just announce to the court, well, you, they violated their probation. Um, the judge has to make findings of that usually, which is another issue that got raised in Hunter's case, kind of awkwardly, ass backwardly. Um, and so I, probably the law in Georgia is that the, the judge would be the one to decide whether Sidney, you know, violated or didn't violate, even if the government is unhappy about it. So, which leads me to another question that we got, and this has to do with the Fifth Amendment. So um, the normal rule is you have your Fifth Amendment privilege not to testify, incriminate yourself at your trial and at your sentencing, even if you got convicted by the judge or the jury at the trial. Your Fifth Amendment right carries through to, with you all the way through the end of your case and the end of the criminal case, the finality does not come until the judge sentences you and issues the order of judgment and commitment if you're being committed. So Sydney will still technically have her Fifth Amendment privilege, but in this kind of situation, the understanding is that she's basically waived that. Um, the cleaner thing to do for the government would have been to put that on the record, but they did not, but that she's waived that as part of her cooperation deal so the question is, does she have to testify against the other? The answer is yes. The, the judge said that on the record, that she's going to have to testify. He said literally against the other defendants. Okay. Now, he used that language because that's the way judges always say it. There might be a good argument that her testimony might not hurt some of the other defendants. But against the other defendants, basically, in legal ease, means as a witness for the government. Okay. Um, so she will 
have to do that, even though technically she, she does continue to have her Fifth Amendment privilege for generally other purposes. Um, either of you want to comment about that? I, I go back to what I understood uh, the government has from her. Uh, that they announced that there was a written proffer from uh, from Sydney, which, and I've done this. You, <clears throat> on behalf of your client, you put in writing during plea negotiations. You put in writing uh, your client's story, what what the client can has to say, why the government is off base and prosecuting your client, why your client is a better witness than a defendant for the government. And, and and you may specifically want to tell the government some facts the government clearly doesn't know. Right. Not aware of. That that is uh I'd say more often than not uh the reason to uh make an upfront written proffer to the government. Uh to get the ball rolling. And, and so I suspect Sydney had some of that. She has had conversations with other defendants and it's not clear. It, it, it's rather it's become clear to her lawyers that th- through the grand jury process and, and what have you, uh, the government is clueless about certain things that either happened or were said that they that might help their case, and and that could be what all this is about. Yeah. Sorry, I had my mic off there. So I'm with you, uh, King. I'm on the same page with you. It was reported, I thought, a couple of places that. Her proffer was a meeting rather than in writing, but that was not at all clear today from the hearing, I didn't think, which it was. So I'm not sure which it was. Um, and I'm, But I'm with you. It's a lot cleaner. I liked it better than that in writing because then you have control over exactly what you're saying <laughs> as opposed to letting them sit there and, uh, and uh, pillory your client with questions. But sometimes they don't want to do it that way. So you get you get stuck with that. Um, what do you guys think, um, while we're still waiting for Ship, who hasn't quite come back yet, what do you guys think, Lawson and King, about this condition that she not speak to any of the other defendants in the case? Like, Lawson, yeah. we agree, don't I'll, we, that I'll, the government could not demand that of her. They- yeah, and in fact, it, you know, that's always a little dicey when you, as the defense lawyer wants to talk to the witness and, and they call you, they, you know, they can think, the, the witness can think the, the prosecutor's my lawyer and you just, you try to, I, I'm not your lawyer, but it's totally up to you, whatever you want to do. You, you try to be even handed in that, but that's, those are, those are sort of awkward situations for the prosecutor to be in. Um, so that's, uh, yeah, that, uh, but I think it, once you start putting a court order, you say, wait a minute, I, you're, you're denying me effective assistance of counsel. You're telling them I can't 
you know, I can't do that. So my right to, what does that do to my sixth amendment right to confront a witness? You know, I want to talk with this person. Um, but particularly if it's the preparation for trial. And so what you said, Leslie, I thought, uh, you know, you'd really want that cleared up. You say, are you telling me that as a lawyer, I can't talk to other witnesses or other witnesses, lawyers? I mean, I need that to get ready. Uh, you, you shouldn't be able to, you know, deny me effective assistance of counsel or right to cross, you know, confront a witness. That, that seems like that's really not allowed. Now, King, that judge didn't bat an eye today at that, did he? He did not, you know, uh, I've <clears throat> in my practice, uh, it, this wasn't a criminal case, but it was a, uh, a administrative enforcement action against my client and word kept coming back from this witness and that witness you know, during the investigative uh, phase that uh, they were being browbeat during interviews and then basically told uh, either outright or subtle hints that they shouldn't tell uh, the company or its lawyer, me, uh, about this meeting and what we talked about. And uh, uh, that that curled my hair on the back of my neck. Yeah, I, I, I imagine, that. yeah. There's good case law here in Maryland, D.C. and Virginia that that's that's unconstitutional. Yeah. <laughs> you, the prosecutor cannot do that. I, I so found for a judge that. to just be like, oh, sure, that's fine. I about fell off my chair. So maybe that law hasn't made its way to Georgia. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, it, it, this, this was happening out of D.C. So it, it <laughs> even where it's the law, it's not always followed. Oh, I agree. I've had more than one case where I had to send that case law to the prosecutor because they were doing that. And I had to tell them, you cannot do that and you will stop doing that or I'm going to file a complaint with the court. And that was the end of it every time, because for some reason they weren't trained on the fact that they can't tell witnesses not to talk to the defense lawyers. Funny how that is. Yeah. 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 So. Well, I was hoping we could get Ship's comment on that because he was the one that initially raised it earlier today, but he hasn't come back. He had he had to step out for 15 or 20 minutes, he said. So um, those were all the topics that I wanted to cover. Let me look and see if we got any other questions that I haven't covered yet. Um, let's see. I think we're co we've covered all of those. Let me look at the other tweet. Um, King, is there anything else you wanted to cover while I'm taking a look at the questions here? No, I think uh, we've gone over everything I had in mind. Okay. What about you, Lawson? Yeah, I, you know, when you have a big conspiracy like this and it's the, the government normally doesn't do as well when they're trying to bring up novel theories and, and, you know, and every project, Oh no, this is just a, That's a good point. But yeah. gosh, th there is no law in this. And you're, and let's say th these are not, I can't imagine those election laws. I mean, that stuff is supposed to be, you, you can't, you know, fraudulently, you know, vote this way or have, I mean, it's more like kind of blue collar law, but when you're trying to get into when a lawyer gets to give advice and I, I should know more about the indictment, but I'm just saying this is, very novel stuff and um 
boy, I, you know, where's your, your due process that I knew I was going to get in trouble for this? You know, if you're breaking into something to steal votes, but everybody understands that. This seemed to be very cutting edge on, is, are you sure this is a criminal case? And um, I, that's normally where the government gets in trouble because they just never done it before. And what we've seen already, giving away the store on a couple of pleas, that's certainly consistent with, well, it, it, it made sense in the, in the conference room, but when we've actually tried to, to fit this very novel legal theory into how criminal law and procedure actually works, you find out it's not fitting very well. And I think that's probably what's happening here. Yes, this is a good point. Um, that this is also when the prosecutors, they go out on this limb and then they will sometimes really pull back with this kind of plea because they realize late in the game that they've staked out a position that is, you know, dubious. Yeah. They, they, it doesn't sound dubious to them when they're kicking it around their office and they're putting it in front of the grand jury and no one's questioning them about it. Yeah. And then the judge and the defense lawyers show up and things start to change. Right. So here's a question we got. It says, a law professor in D.C. said that Jeff Clark was the biggest loser in this Powell plea. Do you agree with that and why? So this is a question from Logos Philos or Philos. So I'm not sure why what this person, this lawyer is thinking um, that this would benefit Clark off the top of my head. King, do you see any reason why this would benefit Clark particularly? Benef does it, they say benefit Clark? Oh, or? no, that he would does the biggest loser in Big, her plea. They, uh, I don't see a connection. Clark, Clark is trying to get this case first removed. He, he lost that first battle, but he's appealed it and he's asked for a stay of the case pending that appeal that appeal uh the motion for stay has not been ruled on yet yeah uh, so leslie here's where i one one interpretation of that is that when you're in a state court and i had you know i'll, I'll bring it up that case the guy you know got acquitted on appeal and then all three you know, all three guilty pleas got unwound. So I, next time I saw that, and I did not really, I didn't think much of that. Professionally, I didn't, I didn't have a good relationship. So I said, you know, I beat you so bad, I'm going to put four, four wins for that one. Uh, but, <laughs> but, but here's the thing, when you're in a, so you're in what, Fulton County, I mean, every time somebody pleads, what's going to be the local news story? Oh, guilty plea. So, you know, if you get up to five, you could give away the store four or five times. And as you're, but if you're the next 12 mm. people, they get, all they've read is all oh, these people are pleading guilty. So the things we're talking about today are great. Let's, let's say, you know, uh, Sydney, her probation ends and she's back practicing law. Yeah. But what, what's the enduring memory from that? I think the other defense lawyers are going to have to be concerned. Everything that's in the paper is, boy, the government's really rolling people up and even rolling yeah. up a high powered lawyer. And that's, that is a, I don't know how you vore dire around that. Right. No, I agree. It has an effect on your jury pool because of just the top line, whatever the headline was, none of the actual reality of what, what's going on with it. Yeah. So um, we do have a couple of questions. So I'm just going to say this one more time, just so, so that people who are coming to the conversation later, uh, or, you know, I know sometimes stuff goes by a little fast the first time. It's a little easier to, to grasp it the second or the third time. Um, 
the the issue with the dismissal why did she have to plead guilty to get the dismissal the reason is because she pled guilty under the georgia first offender statute okay normally when you plead guilty yeah you don't get doesn't get dismissed later (laughs) right you plead guilty um and you can't usually appeal that either because you pled guilty um but under this first offender statute which is common across the states you have to plead guilty. That's part of the price. You have to admit that what you did violates the law. Then the judge puts you on probation. And then if you satisfy your probation, then the judge dismisses the case later. So this is articulated different ways. Sometimes it's called probation before judgment. Sometimes it's called the judge withholds the adjudication. I think that's the way the judge phrased it in Georgia today. The idea is you're on the hook. You have to be a good boy or a good girl until the time runs out. And then if you do that, then the judge magically takes the the plea off and the conviction doesn't ever get finalized. And your record is that you were charged but not convicted. Okay, which is still different even so from whether it can, your record can be expunged. That would have to be a further step because this process does not remove the charge against you. It just means that the charge is not considered a conviction on your record. Right. Okay. So that's why it's kind of, it seems backwards to people, but this is why it's a special statutory provision for first offenders. And so, and you have to be someone who doesn't have a prior record to be eligible for this. Right. Because um, the expunction is really for the arrest. So you don't right. NCIC. So, um, right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And different places, it works a little bit different everywhere. Some places you have to have the government's agreement to even be eligible for this. Um, let me look at the statute real quick and see what it is, whether the um, prosecutors have to consent. Some places the prosecutors have to consent and some places the judge gets to decide. This statute says the court may with the consent of the defendant it does not say with the defense consent of the government so the prosecutors might not have had any choice in georgia today but but to you know they have they can't prevent her from taking advantage of this statutory right um to plead guilty under this special section the judge has to do it with the defendant's consent so all right ship i see you're back let me bring you back into the speaker box can you hear us, Ship? Unmute yourself. Who, me? Yeah, you. Yeah. Um, okay, so we talked about your idea about, because uh, uh, I was shocked um, when the judge said that one of the conditions of Sydney's probation was that she couldn't talk to the other defendants, and the judge didn't even bat an eye about that. Now, I understand that he may not have been on the bench very long, but he was a prosecutor for a long time um, or a while anyway there. And I was telling them that, you know, here, Maryland, D.C. and Virginia, there's good law that prosecutors are not allowed to do that. They cannot tell witnesses that they can't talk to the defense lawyers. Um, and I noticed you noticed that, you know, right away, too. So what, what your thoughts? Do you think any of the other lawyers will will raise that as a concern with this judge? Because I would if I were representing one of the others. Well, I think the first thing I would do as a defense lawyer is I would call her a lawyer and say, okay, let me understand what you think the scope of your obligation is. Do you think that it is a term of your agreement that she not talk to defense counsel? 
because they think that is a term of the agreement. That's, I mean, that's just, it's just not even open to debate whether that's constitutional or not. Right, uh, I agree. I mean, but I don't the think there's law, any doubt about it, Ship. He said she could not speak to the other defendants about the substance of the case. Well, there, the case law, and it's including the Supreme Court case, I think. because I, I, I know. Had to look at this That's what I was says, telling them. It's witnesses, like that law hasn't made its way to Georgia? What the hell? <laughs> yeah. Witnesses do not belong to any party. They are simply witnesses. And you cannot prevent the defendant from being able to prepare by talking to witnesses. Now, what I told, and I always told the agents that, too, because that's where you often found the mischief, is the agent would say, hey, you know, we really yeah. prefer if you're not talking, blah, blah, blah. I would tell the agents, look, here's the law. We can tell the, you know, as the prosecutor, we can tell the witness what the, their options are, but we can't tell them what they should do. And we can tell that they, they have no obligation to talk to the defense and that they can certainly lawfully say to the defense we will answer all of your questions in a courtroom. Yeah. And then if the defense persists, then just let us know and we'll take it up with the court. And see, I but think that's cannot. improper. I'm sorry to say, Ship, as a defense lawyer, I think that's leaning on the witness. I think that's giving them legal advice, which the government has no business doing with, with witnesses. If I, were, well, if I knew uh, that a prosecutor had done that in my cases, I would have complained to the court. Well, it's, uh, it's Leslie, correct, I agree with you. Yeah, but it's but, a correct statement of the law. Yeah, but you can't <laughs> you can't give them that advice though. Go ahead, King. What are you going to say? Yeah, I, you're. I agree with you. However, uh, I have experienced that very thing being said to every witness in the case sure. that they I had a prosecutor say to me one time, "I subpoenaed a cop." Okay, they had cops they were going to call for their case. And they did not put on the call sheet or issue a subpoena to call up for a, a officer for one of the officers that I wanted because there was testimony that I wanted from him. So I served a subpoena on the officer and the prosecutor called me and I quote, he said, get your own witnesses. And I was like, see, you don't own any of these witnesses, right? They're, they're equally as available to me as they are to you. And if you have a problem with that, Go talk to your supervisor and get educated. <laughs> I was so angry because I thought, what are what do you think you're doing telling me to get my own witnesses? But there are a lot of prosecutors who have not been trained on this point, unfortunately. Yeah. <clears throat> so, Ship, what would you what do you expect then? Do you think um, one of the I don't know how critical Sydney seems as a witness to some of the other defendants that that might make a difference whether you're going to cause a ruckus about this or not. Well, I, I would want to, you know, if I was Trump's lawyer, I would want to interview her. I would want to know what she has said and agreed. You know, I presume I would be shocked if they do not have a complete statement from her about, you know, any conversations that she might have had with all of the other principals. Um, and I would want to interview her about that if she's willing to tell me. Still there? Yeah. Everybody's going quiet. Yep. Leslie, you're on mute. Sorry. Thank you, Lawson. Yep. So I'm going to assume, Ship, you, by they, you mean that the government has a statement from her about what she 
said to the other defendants. Well, well if they don't, they weren't in this ultra, you know, just an ultra weak bargaining position to give her only, you know, misdemeanors and invisible ink. Right. If, if they didn't get at least that from her. Which highlights the unfairness of then requiring as a probation condition that she can't talk to the other defendants. So the government gets to find out what she told the others or they told her, but now the defense lawyers can't ask her anything at all. That, that just, that's just impossible. If, if, the, if the government refused to produce her statement, I would, I, would, I would argue that it's likely Brady or includes some Brady. And if the government refused to produce it, I'd ask that it be given to the judge. Yeah, my speculation, educated speculation here, it would be that uh, Sydney has a lot of exculpatory things she could say and testify to that would help some of the other defendants. Now, the the former president's lawyer, I think it was Lauro today, said that, you know, if she testified truthfully, they fully expected her testimony to help him. Yeah. So there, maybe they're going to play it cool, but I, I don't know. You guys probably have noticed I have a hard time playing it cool <laughs> at times. So, well, so we shall see what what happens. It, it's entirely possible that they have been working hand in glove for two months and are perfectly happy that she's done this because they know exactly what she said. Right. You have to stop using pronounship. I used to tell clients that all the time. Please stop using pronouns because I can't follow who you're talking about. In that sentence, you meant Trump's lawyers or the other defense lawyers and Sydney. And, you know, Trump's lawyers have been working yeah. hand in glove with Sydney and her lawyers, and they know exactly right. what she said. So and, and so they are perfectly comfortable with her resolving her case in this fashion. And they know what her statement's been, because every time she's talked to uh the prosecution, she's gone back right. and told uh, told the rest of the defense team. The other defense right. exactly what she said. Right. And just so everyone knows, there's no there's no prohibition on that. The defense can do a joint agreement. They, their lawyers can talk to each other. They can talk about what the government, you know, said and asked them. Now, there's there's different views in the defense world about this kind of agreement. It's usually called a joint defense agreement whether that's a good idea, a bad idea, whether it needs to be in writing, whether it doesn't need to be in writing. There's an old joke about if you're in a case with five other lawyers and um, you're six weeks into the case and, um, and you haven't figured out which one of the six defendants is being screwed by the other five lawyers, then it's you. <laughs> <laughs> so you do have to be careful with joint defense agreements. Yeah. But, well, I, um, well, I can, I, I can give you. I, I mean, the case that I resolved this morning, the RICO case, there is a joint, a written joint defense agreement. And once I started, you know, negotiating with the government, the terms of the agreement was I essentially had to stop attending the joint defense agreement meetings. Right, and that's written right into the agreement, so people know right. it's it's in a good agreement that is in there. That if you start negotiating for your client with a plea for the government, then you have to withdraw from the agreement. Yeah. So, yeah. Okay. All right, guys. Well, I think that's all the questions. Thank you all for agreeing to talk tonight on such short notice. Does anybody else have anything that they want to talk to you know say before we sign off? No, it's, I learned a lot. Just um. And it, I think what it does underscore, Leslie, is 
when you're going to practice in this area, you can, you really need to know the Georgia rules, the, the, the Texas bar rules. I mean, this just, the practice of law is so complicated and it's, you know, all your experience does is tells you, this is probably going to be a problem. I need to get some help. Right. Now I need to go figure it out. Right. <laughs> right. And Sydney, for all I know, she might be licensed other places too. And then they'll have to figure that, that part out as well. So yeah, it's, it's can be quite complicated. Yeah. King, anything from you before we sign off? That's well, I, I have a, a sign off uh, point for another day. Uh, we, we need to do a little preparation, but today or yes, I think today, the judge denied Chesbro's uh, motion on the supremacy clause, uh, and the judge <clears throat> gave written reasons hmm. why he did it. But it's a fascinating legal question. I don't think <clears throat> the judge's opinion is that strong, and it may get overturned somewhere along the line. So, right. I wouldn't have expected a state court judge to be really able to grapple with that kind of issue. Would you? No, I, I, I would not. Uh, well, I've, I've known a few who uh, seasoned judges who had a long uh, lifetime of prior litigation experience right. uh, who, who could and would address questions like that. This one is a former prosecutor. Uh, right. For very briefly, pro uh, he prosecuted. So I, <clears throat> I wouldn't expect him to get into all of the nuts and bolts of that hor that that uh, uh, hoary legal issue. Right, I agree. So, so yeah. but it, it's it, it's going to be a big issue on the immunity defense that Trump and the other federal officers have raised either on in the removal or in this case <clears throat> and uh uh and the judge's opinion is the first uh state for the first thing out of that uh, uh state court case that uh takes the issue head on mm, okay i'll have to get that and read it then all right guys uh ship any final words from you nope all right. Fun. All right, fellas. All right, thank you. Well, then well, I'm sure we'll get together again on this or another issue. So I say good night to everyone. Good night. Thanks, Leslie. You bet. Bye. Thank you.